and welcome to today's In Conversation With podcast. Please remember that due to current lockdown restrictions, we're recording this podcast remotely, so if the sound is not tip-top, then do please bear with us. Today, I'm joined by Merrin Somerset-Webb. Merrin is a doyen of personal finance. She's the editor-in-chief of Money Week. She writes for the FT and for Saga magazine, and she's also a bit of a hero of mine. We did an event with Merrin a few years ago, and it had one of the longest waiting lists we've ever had. Uh, it was a huge hit. So it's lovely to be doing a podcast with you today, Merrin. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me on. I remember that event so well. Can you imagine now a physical event with drinks oh, and canapes jammed together on chairs in a lovely building with a nice view? Those were the days, eh? I know you're a busy lady. And, and for people listening that don't follow Marin, don't buy Money Week. You must, because it's a brilliant, brilliant publication. I, I've said to you before, Marin, my husband swears by it. But look, I've got loads of questions to ask you. But we've got to start off with COVID. How are you? You're in Edinburgh. How do you feel about COVID? That's a big question, isn't it? But, you know, we're coming out of lockdown. Do you think going into lockdown was the right move? I don't know. And I think we will, you know, this is one of those things that we're going to find out over the next six to 12 months. We're going to find out whether the downsides of lockdown uh, made the whole thing worth it. And we're also going to be able to compare what we did with what other countries did. And we're going to be able to see whether countries that did a much more severe lockdown with us have done better in the end, or whether countries that did uh, what you might call extreme social distancing, like Sweden, for example, come out of it better. And if you look at the, the numbers now, the jury is very much out, but you can see Sweden's charts moving down towards zero in the same way as ours, despite the fact that they did something much less extreme. So we may well find out that we went rather too far, but I suspect that we will definitely find out that we didn't come out fast enough. You know, we saw these mm. GDP numbers showing that uh, during this period, UK GDP has fallen by about 20%. Now that's entirely predictable. Of course, if you shut down the economy completely, you will get a massive fall in GDP. However, mm -hmm. that's not a recession in the sense that we think of a recession. You know, a recession is something different. It's a slowing of the economy for, uh, you know, generally cyclical reasons, etc. And then you go through a, a period of lower economic growth and then things rebound again. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a general cycle. This is completely different because it's a, a government-induced full shutdown of the economy. Now, if the government has been successful in effectively building a financial bridge from one side of it to the other side of it, then we will see a very sharp rebound. You know, people talk about a V-shaped recovery and mm. while it might not be a full V, I still think that's quite likely. I mean, we'll probably come on to talking about, but I'll talk about it now, come on to talking about what the government has done to build this bridge, which of course was a, a moral responsibility of the state. You take people's ability to earn an income away, you have to replace that income. And that has been done, I think, really quite successfully. You know, the furlough schemes, absolutely extraordinary. Millions mm. and millions and millions of people in the UK almost fully supported by the state, 80% of their salary. And that's that's an extraordinary thing. And, mm. and it happened so quickly. It was amazing how... So fast. You know, we always so criticise our government, don't we? But it's pretty impressive how they turn that around. Yeah, we do. And, uh, you know, when we, when we come to review this period, we will find no end of government failings. But I think we can also mm. say that, uh, you know, it's been an extraordinary exercise on the 
part of HMRC and the Treasury to turn from being effectively, you know, big parts of the government are money collection organizations, and they've turned from that into into money distribution organizations. And that that was an extraordinary shift and done very fast. And if mm-hmm. you look at the loan systems as well, I mean, the bounce back loan scheme has been amazing, 24 billion already, and all the other various loan schemes, etc. So almost everybody, with exceptions, by the way, for example, the directors of self-owned companies found themselves in a difficult situation where they were unable, uh, certainly in the beginning, to to access any source of finance from the government. But they can, of course, now use the bounce back loan. So with some exceptions. But but it is a loan. You know, I think as a company owner, it's a loan. You're just, who wants more debt, really? No one wants more debt. But it's an interest-free loan. So if you can get it back in the first year, then that's something. And it also, Mm. you know, it does the job of getting people through to the other side. And Mm. I think everybody knows that when we get to the other side, there will be conversations about what is really a loan and what is really not a loan. I would expect a significant amount of forgiveness on the other side of this. So if you, oh, I would have thought so, yeah. I mean, you know, we now having got this far, we now need to keep things going for the next year or so to mm. give people the opportunity to hang on to their businesses until we're sure that the economy is back on the go again. But one of the things about this, one of the things that we've seen with furlough, uh, with the self-employment grants, which, by the way, have been another really quite wonderful thing. You're self-employed if you can produce tax returns for three years and you put in a tax return for the last tax year. And then you got 80% of your average profits for the previous three years up to £2,500 for the first three months. And then there's another scheme for June, July and August, which is 70%. And that puts money directly into people's accounts and they can continue to work as well. Now, one of the results of all this has been that a lot of people are going to come out of lockdown with their personal finances in very, very significantly better shape than they went in. And that's Mm. the case in the US as well, where unemployment benefits throughout this whole thing have been amazing, because on top of your basic unemployment, which in the US is reasonably generous in the short term and hideously ungenerous in the long term. But during this period, you've got your three, four hundred dollars of basic support, plus an extra six hundred dollars a week, plus the standard grants that everybody's got. So a lot of people are finding in the US in particular, that their income has been much higher during the lockdown period than normally. And in the UK, a lot of people are finding that while they're income may have fallen slightly, their expenses have fallen, uh, not necessarily for the Mm. best of reasons, but nonetheless, their expenses have fallen quite dramatically. So we had numbers the other day from the ONS showing that the average family should be saving or would have been able to save. Of course, there's no such thing as an average family, but something in the region of 180, 185 pounds a week. Take on board that household balance sheet repair opportunity, plus the fact that during this period, a lot of people, not me, and I'm guessing not you either, but an awful lot of people have had significant amounts of time that they don't normally have because they've been <laughs> furloughed. So you, you have this large group of people that have repaired their personal balance sheets, and they've also spent a reasonable amount of time looking through their personal finances. So something really interesting, one dynamic that we saw was people opening new accounts with the stockbrokers, and particularly with the, with the online brokers so they can start investing, but also in particular, going back to inactive accounts like their uh, children's uh, JICER accounts and that kind of thing, looking at them going, how do I sort this out? How do I make this work? And so people actually doing their household admin while not seeing their income reduce. And that the point about this is that as we come out of this crisis, will unemployment rise? Absolutely. Will a lot of people who have been furloughed find that post-furlough there is no job? Absolutely. But will there be another very big group of people who come out of lockdown and furlough 
in excellent financial shape and able and willing to spend again. And you see mm. that already and, you know, silly stuff like the queues outside Kentucky Fried Chicken as the desperation to get back into garden centers and shops and yeah. the booking of holidays. Paint companies even, seeing their best yeah. sales that they've seen in yeah. years. So, you know, is it possible that we really do see a V-shaped recovery? Yes, it is. But the longer we stay in lockdown, and the longer we hang on to things like the two meter rule and the longer we keep our children out of school, meaning that people can't go back to work in the same way they worked before, the longer we do all those things, the less likely the V-shaped recovery is. Mm. I mean, I wonder if the government intended us to lock down quite as intensely as, as we did when this <laughs> begun. And if you go back to the beginning, there was uh, lots of stuff about, well, if you can't work from home, you know, you should go to work, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, the entire economy shut down completely. I'm not convinced yeah. that was what they intended. But then you go yeah. through this period of intensely terrifying people. How do you unterrify people? And in particular, how do you unterrify people when you've put them in quite a comfortable position? Hmm. Do you have a view on whether lockdown was the right approach? I think that's too hard for us non-scientists. Anyone who works in finance knows how useless models are. And you know, we yes. know that when we when we make up, you can't you can't models, model for coronavirus, can you? No, but you can't really model for anything, to be honest. I mean, you know, we know that when we make models, the the result is one hundred percent dependent on the inputs, and mm. so you have to have very high level of confidence in the inputs to have any particular confidence in the outputs. And even when we have in the financial markets, we have confidence in the inputs because we've got two or three hundred years worth of history that tells us how things usually work. And we have some degree of confidence, say, in how companies might work and how markets work, etc. Even so, we still look at our results as being, well, you know, more guidelines than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then so when you talked to um, financial people at the beginning, and I did quite a few podcasts at the beginning for Money Week with people who work in markets and, and make models, and they they were all saying, well, how can this model that we're basing our behavior on, how can this work? Because we can't have any confidence in the inputs because we don't really know anything about how this virus operates. And then we have this other weird dynamic in politics that we don't have in markets where, you know, if you look at stock markets and you look at the way we behave in the financial world, that market reacts instantly to new information instantly. So as the months have gone past mm. and we've learned more and more about the virus, the markets have reacted immediately. Oh, look, a possible vaccine. Oh, look, we understand more about how it spread. We know that it spread in this environment and that environment, but not in this one and not in that one. We can see that the odds of a second wave are falling. This, this, All these things, right? Yeah. As we see all this stuff, the market reacts instantly. But politics, and particularly at the moment, seemingly politics in the UK, doesn't seem to react at all to the new information. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that is beginning to look increasingly odd. It's almost as though the government is still working with the information it had at the beginning of March, as opposed to the information yes. it has right now. Do you think the government have done enough to support small businesses? I think it's hard to see how they could have done much more. You know, one Do of you not think that, they should have um, done something with rent, with landlords? Oh, well, again, difficult one. You know, you've seen this in the residential market, right, where renters have been told that they can have holidays and there won't be any evictions until the end of August, etc. That's good. Yeah. But then you have to ask yourself, what about the landlord? What about the, you know, sovereignty of returns to private property and all this kind of thing? How long mm. do you let that stuff go on for? So, I mean, I think you're right. I think you're right. But we, we have to be careful about setting too many precedents. There's definitely a natural cleanse, isn't there? Of, there is a natural you know, cleanse. Businesses um, that aren't a great business. And, 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 you know, I'm not saying every business should be saved. But, you know, this is your moment as a business to really examine it and work out if you've got a business and if it, you know, but... Yeah. 
I would say from where I'm standing, there hasn't been a huge amount done for small businesses other than would you like a grant? I'm all debt in your business. No, thanks. And you can follow your staff. but You can follow your staff. And I said at the very beginning of this, if you need money, take the loans. They're available. And as I said, I do think that there will be more conversation about what is and what is not a loan going forward. I'd be really surprised if all these loans are treated going forward as real loans. I wrote a while ago about whether a lot of these loans would end up being translated into equity so that the state would own tiny, tiny parts of the equity of lots of different smaller companies. And that would work as some kind of, you know, giant sovereign wealth for the UK. And you will say, well, how the hell do we finance that? But the answer is we did already. We did already finance this. It's already done. There are many different ways that these loans will be converted and changed and fudged over time. I'm one of the... um, fascinating subject on the go at the moment is about debt jubilees. And if we have a world where debt is simply too high, both in the private sector and in the public sector, should we do something to just wipe that debt out, make that debt go away? And I'm beginning to see some of the things happening in the COVID crisis as being a little bit like that. And if you look Mm -hmm. at, for example, in the US, people who talk about debt jubilees always say this is going to start with student loans, because we can't live in a world where students have these huge debt burdens hanging over them. And so in the US, for example, one of the things that has happened during the COVID crisis is that student debt payments have been cancelled for a three-month period, uh, which is extendable. It's not like a mortgage holiday in the UK where you take a mortgage holiday, but those payments are added on to the other end, and so your debt rolls up and you still have to pay the money off in the end. That's not the same with student loans in the US. You take those three months off and it's just gone. And there are, again, there are lots of other ways to walk away from student debt in the US. And, you know, if you work in particular things in the public sector, your payments come down to 10 years as opposed to longer. So there's lots of little things beginning to happen that Mm. are not necessarily COVID precedents, but some of which are COVID precedents. And, you know, the uh, the grants to self-employed, et cetera, et cetera, are COVID precedents. And the payments to everyone in the US, the flat payments of $1,200 an adult, $600 a child in the US, these are interesting little possible starters for a debt jubilee across the country or possibly for the beginning mm. of a universal basic income etc always are trying to bring down debt across the, the the public and private sectors so really interesting little policy changes may come out of covid not necessarily by the way ones that i will 100 percent approve of but interesting changes nonetheless and how does this work i mean quantitative easing right but how do they just print more money like the money that they are spending on furlough schemes and whatever you know where does that come from how have they just wiped away all the nhs's debt how does that work in, in a basic level because with okay. all of this i said to my husband i'm like can't i just quantitative ease just keep quantitative he's like no it doesn't quite work like that but People it does would work be, like that well he's like but then you're just going to get hyper 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 inflation but i think probably for a lot of people listening it would be really interesting for you to give us a bit of an explanation as to how a government can just print more money and how that process works and how you stop hyperinflation. Right. Okay. Government debt is massive and getting more massive, right? So during the um, late 90s and early 2000s, we somehow managed to get our uh, uh, debt to GDP ratio down to what you might consider to be long-term sustainable levels, sort of 30, 35% of GDP. Then we move into the great financial crisis and government debt starts to rise and rise and rise and rise. And we get up to 70, 80% of GDP where we were knocking around before. And the people that think GDP is gross domestic produce. Yeah, so everything that a country produces. So there's no point 
point in just looking at debt as a single number. So, you know, UK public debt is what, something like £1.9 trillion or something like that, £28,000, £30,000 per person of the population. You look at it like that and, uh, you know, you, you feel a bit sick, right? But there's no point in just looking at those absolute numbers. You have to look at it uh, relative to what we produce, like you would a mortgage. A mortgage is only big if relative to your salary. So you think about debt in terms of your ability to pay it back. But in the old days, we always used to believe that if a government debt to GDP ratio got to 80% or so, all was lost. You know, the rest of the world would lose faith in your ability to pay your debts. The rest of the world would lose faith in your currency and you would start to see inflation. Now, that hasn't happened. And now as debt starts to rise further and further, we borrowed, uh, what, 62 billion in April alone. And the cost of all these grants we've been talking about, of the furlough, of the uh, the bounce back loan, everything we've talked about, this is absolutely enormous. So government debt is obviously going to go up. So how do we cover that? Well, I mean, obviously, you could uh, cover it longer term by cutting spending and putting up taxes. How likely is that? after something Mm. like this? How do you think you can stay in government if your solution to it is a massive round of austerity plus huge tax raises? Absolutely not going to happen. So then you have two other options. You can um, just borrow more, borrow, 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 selling more bonds into the private sector. Or you can say, do you know what? Why don't we just print the stuff? which is effectively what we've been doing for some time, but not explicitly. And we're moving closer and closer to that. I talked earlier about how there were many policies that would come out of this, things that pre-COVID were an outrage or considered an outrage that were considered to be unthinkable are now increasingly thinkable. So people talk about what they call modern monetary policy, uh, modern monetary theory or modern monetary policy, which is literally just getting the central bank to print money and give it to the government spent. Now, what your husband says is that's completely nuts and will lead to inflation in the medium and long term. And I agree with him that if you consistently print money with nothing behind it, you will see inflation. And the other view is that we haven't had inflation with quantitative easing, that there are so many deflationary impulses inside the economy that it's just not going to happen. And you can look at this as well in terms of... So it's a balance to, you know... Well, it's also a matter of belief. So every now and then you get a huge paradigm shift in the way that people believe in and trust money. Back at the very, very early days when you shifted from uh, straightforward barter to using tokens to represent value of goods. And then another mm. huge shift when you shifted from um, using something that you knew had a, had a value, like a shell or whatever, into a piece of paper. Suddenly you're um, saying, well, this piece of paper represents something. And I believe that and I trust it to represent it. And for a long time, mm. you've believed with no obvious justification at all that that bit of paper represents value. And, you know, there's every possibility that your husband and I are ridiculously old fashioned and that we're in another shift now when entire populations can be made to believe, just like entire populations were made to believe in the past that a bit of paper had value, can now be made to believe that digital money has value, that you can write a pile of numbers down on the screen and confirm it's real. And if that shift is underway, then you don't have to worry about inflation because inflation is in many ways about belief. Talking about what we're going to see and what's going to happen, can you talk to us about the recession that we're going to face? Yeah, I think the key thing is not to call it a recession. Um, Okay. 
to call it a shock. This is not a recession. A recession is a natural part of an economic cycle okay. caused by a change in the economy or a change in the financial system. So, you know, we had a recession in 2007-2008 because we had a great boom followed by a financial collapse, which fed into the real economy. We had a recession. Something that is short-term, exogenous mm. shock, defined by government action, is different. It's not a recession. Now, it may cause long-term recession, but it's not a recession in itself. So when you say how bad is it going to be, again, because it was caused by the state, it's dependent on state behavior. So as I say, it depends on whether we're allowed to send our children back to school. It depends on whether we're allowed to give up on this ridiculous two-meter rule that nobody else in the world seems to believe in. And it depends on whether we're going to have to quarantine for two weeks when we come back from our holidays, if we're allowed to go on holidays at all. It depends yeah. on all these things. So are we going into a recession? Is there a recession? How bad is the recession? The answer to that is politics. It's not economics. And that's a very unusual situation to be in because usually the economy in the main operates separately to politics. It does what it does. We do what we do. Capitalism is a, so you're is, saying the steps is a type that they're of natural make human is, behavior. Um, yeah. You know, we are, we are automatically economic animals. It's only when we're prevented from behaving in the way that we normally do that things get complicated. So the answer to is it a recession, isn't a recession, how long does it go on, will I keep my job, etc. is, I don't know, ask Boris Johnson if you can find him. <laughs> yeah. We just, Except we've that got to get help, going. But um, no. we've got to get going. Because we've right got now, to we're, get going. It's... We won't be okay for much longer. There's a no. limit to how long businesses can keep going. And you will have seen that this week has been the week when we've begun to see redundancy consultations beginning. Mm. And if you ask mm. around your friends who run business who are working big mm. companies, you will begin to hear from them that actually this has just begun. And that this is a just begun. huge warning signal. What's the impact been for you at Money Week? Oh, fine. I mean, you know, Money Week is actually doing quite well at the moment. When a crisis hits, everyone needs to know what's happening with their money. Mm. Everyone needs to know how to behave in a financially volatile environment. And so I can't think of a crisis yet in our 20-year history that hasn't been quite good for us. So this works for Money Week. And this is also, it's a great time for us because, you know, we set up this magazine 20 years ago with a view to improve the financial lives of the UK population as much as we possibly could to try and cut through all the complications, all the PR crap in the personal finance world and genuinely help people get on top of something that they wrongly believe is difficult and complicated. And this is exactly the time when we're able to do precisely what shine. we wanted to do in mm. those first bits. So we can now be there saying to people, this is what's happening. This is what you should do. This is what we believe. As long as we're helping and feel that we're helping, that's actually incredible to be gratifying so you know this is good for us let's move on and talk about more specifically personal finance questions the majority of these have been sent in from our readers but i'm going to start off with someone asking where the best place is to go to educate themselves on all things finance well you're gonna say read money week aren't you you could try money week you could try money week if you go to our website we've got lots of stuff on um, how to begin and uh, you know basic stuff on how to invest and what investing means my executive editor john stepick has also written a great book on investing recently called the skeptical investor which i think is well worth looking at I wrote a book which is woefully out of date, but does have all the basics in it back in, gosh, 2008 now, called uh, 
Love is Not Enough, The Smart Woman's Guide to Money. That has in it one <laughs> chapter, which I still really like, even though it is out of date, which basically pretty much gives you everything you need to know about investing in 15 pages. Not so much. those are all good places to start. And all of the platforms have uh, good basic information on them. But the key thing when you're starting to learn about investing in finance is that it's not complicated. I mean, it's genuinely not anywhere near as complicated as everyone is going to try and make you think. You just have to remember that if you're investing in equities and shares, all you're doing is buying a tiny little part of a company. And when you buy that tiny little bit of a company, when you are thinking about whether you should buy that tiny bit or not, you need to think about what it costs to buy it and what its prospects are in the future. Good company, bad company, what's the price you're paying for for this tiny share of the company? That's it. And then you just need to know about the various wrappers that you can put what you have bought in. So a pension and an ISA, these are things that confuse people so much, but you know, they're nothing except for wrappers. Think of them as a, each of them as a cardboard box inside which you can put assets, uh, shares or bonds or whatever. You can put them inside the box and the box simply protects them from tax. So a pension is not a thing in itself. It's a wrapper inside which you put investments. And ISA is not a thing in itself. You just, it's a box into which you put things. So when you hear people talking about, oh, I bought a Santander ISA or I bought a Barclays ISA or whatever, they just bought a wrapper then they have to choose what to put inside it. So once you understand these these very simple things, it becomes much, much easier. And actually, I, want, I just want to say something else about investing, which is not about learning about investing. It's about the point of investing. You know, when you invest, you're doing three things, actually. You're attempting to buy yourself uh, freedom in the future. You're attempting to move consumption today into larger consumption in the future, Right. But the other thing that you're doing that's really important is that you're participating in a shareholder democracy. And one of the great conversations in politics everywhere at the moment is how does everyone get a voice? How do you play a part in the way the world is run? Now, if you own shares, if you are an investor, an equity holder, which, by the way, almost everyone who works in the UK is now via auto enrollment, you will have pension investments. And those pension investments will include equities, include shares, which are tiny parts of companies. If you are a shareholder, you have a vote, you have a say, you have the ability to have a voice over how corporate Britain is run. And that's so important that you're Mm. participating in the corporate world at the same time as doing yourself a long-term financial favor. So if you're not engaged with your investments and you're not engaged with your financial future, then you're also not engaged with the corporate world and you're not using the voice that you have. You mentioned ISIS. Is that the first thing you're saying everyone should do is use that ISA? There's a lengthy argument about ISIS and pensions, but the first thing you need to do, I mean, absolutely the first thing is make sure that you have a cash rainy day fund and that you know people will be looking at those right now and really wishing that they had a bigger one than they have in the main and i always say that you should have six months worth of cash in an account and that can be a cash isa because isa wrappers can also have cash inside them or it can just be a straightforward instant access account doesn't matter but you need to know that you have six months worth of living cash available before you do anything else. But I'm putting Mm -hmm. aside, by the way, your auto-enrollment pension because that's managed by your company and don't turn that down. That's free money, right? So put that aside. Don't opt out of that. Never opt out of that. Never opt out of that. Your employer 
is contributing, you're getting tax rebates on it. Do not opt out of auto-enrolment. Just don't. I hard mean, though, when it, you're saving for your first house and then that's another bit of your salary gone hard. Yeah, just it? don't even think about it. Just don't even think about it. The average auto-enrolment fund, if you leave it be and you work for most of your adult life, when you retire, you will find that you have enough in that pot added to your state pension to live a good retirement. So just let it be. But then outside that, work to build six months worth in a what you might call a, a freedom fund so that you know that you can leave your job if you need to, that if you uh, leave your job not through your own choice, you still have security, uh, yeah. that you have the ability to find the new job that you want, etc. Et so, so you can important. sleep at night as well. <laughs> and if you, Then if people, you start investing elsewhere. And if people want to start investing where do they start? How do they start? In a kind of functional way, what do you do? How does it work? Well, you have, to, you have decisions to make. And the decision you have to make basically is how much time do you want to devote to this? Do you want this to be something that you engage with all the time or do you just want it done? Now, mm-hmm. there are different ways to do it. I mean, if you have a reasonable amount of money, it might be worth going to a wealth manager or an IFA and getting help. If not, you need to think to yourself, do I want to choose what I invest in myself or do I want this just done in a simple, straightforward and reasonably cheap way? Uh, most people are going to want simple, straightforward and reasonably cheap, I think, mm. in the main. Mm. In which case, you might as well go to one of the new-ish passive investment robo-advisors online. So the classic of those is Nutmeg, which is one of one of the first in the market and mm-hmm. you don't need any particular amount of money to get started. You just choose a risk level, stick your money in and go away. You'd give that the thumbs up, yeah? Yeah. I mean, I'm involved with another one of these companies, one called Net Wealth, which is for people with slightly more money, there's a minimum investment of, of 40,000. But again, it's a, a similar sort of idea. You hand your money over, you choose a risk level, a risk level is managed passively, you don't have to worry about it. And it just is what it is. Now, and Nutmeg, what's the minimum you need to invest by Nutmeg? Oh, I don't think there is a minimum, maybe a couple okay. hundred quid, but I, I'm not sure there okay. is a minimum. You know, they're, they're slightly different organizations. Net Wealth has more of a, it's more of an online wealth manager with some old fashioned bits to it in terms of personal service, mm. etc. Nutmeg is very much for people uh, starting with small amounts of money, etc. So okay. these mm. are great ways to start. And then you can get accustomed to the idea of investing. You can read around the edge and get a sense of it if you want to, or you can just ignore it. Now, mm. the other more complicated way to do this is to open accounts at um, II or Hargreaves Lansdowne or AJ Bell, which are the big names in this area, all excellent companies. And what, and what would you describe those companies as? Investment platforms is, I think, how we would describe those. So you go to mm-hmm. them, you open an account, an ISA account, perhaps, remember, there's a wrapper into which you put stuff, a SIP, a pension account, again, a wrapper into which you put stuff, or just an ordinary investment account that doesn't have a tax wrapper attached to it. And Hargreaves Lansdowne also does something, a, a sort of an active saving system where you can put cash in and then move it around different savings products to get better interest rates. So they're all great companies. Mm. And when you do that, then you have to do something else. You have to choose what funds you have. So you have to explicitly choose the investments that you put in those wrappers. And that means that you have to think about it harder and be engaged in a different way. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the old days, I used to believe when we first started Money Week that everybody would want to take personal responsibility for their finances. And I couldn't for the life of me imagine how it could be that people wouldn't be genuinely interested in picking their own funds and picking their own stocks. And gradually over the years have gone by, I've become slightly less naive and begun to realize that my hobbies are not everybody's hobbies, that most people actually want this to be done in a very simple, administratively efficient way that doesn't involve them having to spend too much time on it. So, Is now a good time to put money into your pension? 
It's pretty much always a good time to put money into your pension on the basis that uh, the government's topping it up for you via the, uh, via the tax system. And it partly depends on how much time you've got, though. You know, if you're retiring in five years, is right now a really good time to go piling into risky equities? Probably not. But maybe. We just don't know. So you have to be more careful. If you are retiring in 30 years, there's almost no bad time to put money in. Because over a 30-year period, unless something very weird happens, you're going to find that money grows very substantially. So it's a, it's a matter of time. Right now, if you've got 30 years or 35 years, absolutely. If you've got five, think about it very carefully. And is there a sort of rule of thumb as to the percentage of your salary you should be putting into your pension? Same question for ISAs, same question for other investments. I don't believe there are. I mean, people will tell you different things on this. And uh, particularly on pensions, you know, you can raise all sorts of scaremongering about how you have to put 20% of your income aside or 30% of your income. You have to do this, you have to do that. First, I think that you have to be aware of your priorities. And we just talked about this with you saying how tempting it must be to opt out of auto-enrollment. Now, I don't think that we should opt out of auto-enrollment, but I do think that we should stop bullying young people to save very extensively in their 20s. And even in their early 30s, you know, it's hard to get people to engage with it. And they also have other priorities, as you say, buying houses, having experiences, going on mm. holidays, you know, doing fun stuff before they have kids. Not that having kids is not fun, just in case any of my kids are listening. It's fun. Um, <laughs> but there's lots of stuff that you could do before. So I think that these hard and fast rules about what you should do and when and how are not helpful, not helpful at all. What most people do is that they start raising their saving rates quite intensely into their late 30s, early 40s, 50s. Now, you can mm. say that's not ideal. And if people saved in their early 20s, they wouldn't have to save so much in their early 50s. But that is not the way that life works. Mm. So, you know, you have to work with what is available rather than what spreads you say that you should do. And could you say as a percentage of your income, this is a percentage that whether it's pension, whether it's ISA, whether it's you know, via some other platform that you should be looking to save each month. So before you spend on anything else, and I know you always say do it at the beginning of the month, is there a percentage ideally that's realistic that you would say people should be thinking about? A lot of people will give you hard and fast numbers. You could say as a rule of thumb, 20% maybe. But okay. again, I think that is incredibly dependent on your age, on your stage of life. I mean, are we going to tell people that they have to save 20% of their income if they're already in an auto-enrollment pension and they've just bought a house and they've got a very big mortgage? Of course we're not. You know, this is so so dependent on where you are already and if you've if you've already saved or if you've inherited and you have money already why would you save 20 percent of your income if you have absolutely nothing and you want to retire early why would you not save 35 percent exactly. yeah yeah so it's too easy to pull numbers out of the air and say this this counts for everybody it doesn't mm. an awful mm. lot of personal finance is generic uh, you know, how does a nicer work? How does a SIP work? How should you be saving, etc.? These are generic things, uh, mm. but amounts are not. Okay. Someone said, what can individuals do to protect their financial situation in the times of COVID and Brexit uncertainty? Are there safer places to put your money if you're worried about the UK economy right now? Again, I mean, this comes down to your time frame. Over long periods of time, mm. most stuff is safe. Over long periods of time, keeping your money in cash is not safe yeah. because inflation will gradually erode it. So if you're looking at a lengthy period of time, being in cash is possibly one of the worst things you can do. But yeah. if you are nervous right now and you have cash, you know, don't keep yourself up at night. If you're going to put money into a market and then you're going to stay up every night worrying, don't do it. You keep it in cash. This is not going to be the end of the world. But if you 
of trying to save money for the long term, if you're trying to save money to retire in 20 or 30 years, you are going to have to invest in the end. Okay. Uh, you don't want to do it at a time when you're going to be terrified of it. And yeah. remember that the market is is expensive at the moment. You know, we've had I, an extraordinary I, I bounce from the bottom. Absolutely extraordinary. Is that right? Okay. A lot of stuff is very expensive. Very expensive. A lot of stuff is not, but you know, there's a shift in the market from the lows in March has been extraordinary. Right, I've got lots of questions that have come in from our readers, so I'm going to rattle through some of them because I know we're going to run out okay, of time. Otherwise, somebody said, "What's the best way to save for my child? Is it to invest?" Uh, yes, absolutely. Open a junior ISA for your child again with any of the platforms that I've mentioned, and choose a couple of funds for the long term and leave it alone. You've got time on your side, haven't you? Is it better to keep growing your cash savings or take a leap of faith in the stocks investment game? I mean, you sort of just answered that question, didn't you? Yeah, um, and uh, you know, don't think about it as a leap of faith. If you're yeah. doing this properly, if you're doing this carefully, if you're thinking about it, if you're looking for value, it's not a leap of faith. It's mm. a long-term investment in the growth of economies and the growth of companies. Some said, I don't know anything. Where can I go for a place I can trust for my money? If you know absolutely nothing, then maybe you are best just going to one of the online wealth managers, the nutmegs, the nutmegs, the net wealth, and simply handing your money over and leaving it. And then if you open a Hargreaves Lansdowne account or an Agent Bell account or an II account, then you can also buy, you know, funds that pretty much cover everything. And so you don't then have to make any other decisions. Someone has said... If you want to invest a bit more seriously beyond sort of robo-advisors, I guess, mm-hmm. a, a nutmeg, how do you take it to the next level? Where do you go next? Is that a whole Greaves? Well, again, that's the platforms. You go to the platforms and you work hard to figure out uh, what kind of funds you want, how you want your investment portfolio to look, and you create your investment portfolio there. And those, those platforms will have great information that help you construct portfolios. But you know, that the, is part of work, and it's a lot of personal responsibility. But other human beings on the phone that you can bring up and get advice from? Of course. The robo-advisors or the online wealth management companies now, in the main, also have individual people. So you can ring up and talk to people people there. The Hargreaves Lansdowne has um, effectively financial advisors you can call and talk to. That is expensive, by the way. And then, of course, if you have a significant amount of money, if you've got in the hundreds of thousands, then you can have an old-fashioned wealth manager, of which there are many, many about, who will simply take it all over for you. I liked this question, which was, what's been your best investment? My best investment, gosh, I've got, uh, I've had some terrible investments as well. I'll give you that. The best one. What's your been worse? Probably my, my worst, gosh, I don't know. Things in the tech bubble, lastminute.com. <laughs> the best investment I've made recently, and it's, it's been so good, I can barely call it an investment, more of a gamble, was buying into uh, junior gold miners at the bottom in March. I did a bit of fiddling around with my portfolio then, and I bought a passive uh, exchange trade fund that tracks um, junior gold miner shares, and that's done extremely well. I'm very pleased with that. How do you teach your children? How old are your children? 14 and 11. And how much conversation is there about personal finance and money and all this in your household? Lots. One of the things that I do with my children, and this may be right or may be wrong, time will tell, is that I am completely open about money. I'm open about things like, you know, how much we earn, how much we spend on stuff, how much things cost how one earns money, what one does to earn money. And we talk about money in a very open way, which is very un-English, by the way. No, we're, we're the, quite the same, things, actually. I think it's important. You, it's interesting. And one of the things that I find is that British people are so used to not talking about money 
that when they find someone they can talk about money to, it all comes out at once. So yeah. I know so much about other people's money. I am literally cornered at drinks parties, not anymore, but I <laughs> do this again, cornered by people who want to download every aspect of their personal finances, things they don't tell their partners, their spouses. They will tell me and ask my advice on because people are so desperate to talk about money, but they do it so rarely. So mm. I think what I've done or attempted to do, whether consciously or not, is create an environment where talking about money is not weird and not embarrassing. Yes, I don't need them to know how much my holiday costs, but we talk a lot about the value of money and why we mm. work and the impact that has on our lives and mm. you know how business is structured and I mean my children are nine and seven is the one I talk to but they're fascinated in how does that business make money and there is conversation about say, stock markets etc in my house a lot you know my children will ask well what does that mean and how does that share work and what do you mean it's expensive what do you mean it's cheap mm. and you know all this out there and open whether they really pick it up and, and remember I, I, I don't know but it's definitely there and I you know I give them pocket money and I expect them to manage that pocket money and uh, what um, age did you start giving them pocket money 10 11 I think um, I did um, give them pocket money very young and I definitely don't believe in this business of uh, pocket money in exchange for household chores I they should that. be doing that anyway of course they're part of a mm. household part of a community and they have obligations mm. to that community in the same way that we all do so you know the idea that you should pay your children to make their bed i think is just beyond ridiculous so yeah the money that i give them as pocket money is no strings attached but they have to budget with it i was with a friend in the park yesterday afternoon and their 15 year old son came over and he was telling us about an app called investor it's an app where you're investing in live stocks mm. and shares but you know not with real money not with real money and he sort of he's like god i've made this much today i'm going to buy a super yacht and then you can but i thought how cool is that because he's actually learning you're sort of analyzing these stocks and looking mm. at what's happening would you be pro that, that kind of thing brilliant as long as the app is not a gambling game if you see what i mean mm. and then mm. the idea that what we don't want to do is get people into the idea that you can bet on stuff short term because that mm. always loses. You don't 98% yes, of people true. lose their money when they spread bet, etc. If it's teaching them about the fundamentals of the company and that kind of thing, marvellous. Okay, I'll investigate further. Somebody said, does the future lie in active or passive investing? What's well, the difference? Okay, active investing is when you have a fund manager who very explicitly chooses stocks and runs a portfolio that is very different to the index as a whole. Passive investing is when you say, you know what, those fund managers, they're all useless. They never beat the index. They're really expensive. This is a waste of time. I'm just going to buy an algorithm-driven fund that tracks the market as a whole. So if the FTSE goes got up you. 2%, my fund goes up 2%, goes down got 5%, my fund goes down 5%. Much, much cheaper. And uh, you can look at all sorts of studies that show you that on average, passive funds do better than active funds. So the average active fund manager is really not very good. However, a lot of that is based on fees. So the average active fund manager slightly outperforms if you take out the costs. But of course, there's no point in taking out the costs because the costs really matter. So when you're looking for a, an active fund manager, you need to find one that has what they call a very high active share, i.e. runs a portfolio that is very carefully thought about and very different from the index and that keeps costs relatively low. Now, 
I believe effectively in both. So I have passive investments in particularly in markets where I feel that there's very little value that active managers can add. So in the US, for example, active managers very rarely outform passive. They're much more likely to in the UK and Europe. And so I hold quite a lot of active investments in uh, in the UK, in Europe and in Asia, where I do believe that they can add value. But this is an argument that is going to run and run and run. And it's also an argument, like all arguments at the moment, that has become very passionate and quite moralistic. So I wrote an article about this only a few weeks ago, and I was amazed by the vitriol of both sides, actually, people who believe in active and people who believe in passive. Like so many things, they've become sort of substitute religions. There is a place for both in a well-managed portfolio. Okay. Uh, what's the best approach to finding and making the most out of having a financial advisor? Is it word of mouth? Finding a financial advisor is a very localized and very difficult. There are various websites that you can use for it, but the best way to find a good financial advisor is to find a good financial advisor that a friend or acquaintance already has. Yeah, okay. What should you do about lots of small pension pots? Should you consolidate them or leave them? depends on costs. You need to have a good look at how much it'll cost to consolidate them into one place. But if you can consolidate them, I would, simply because it's one of the things you need to do with your finances always is make them as simple as possible. Everyone hates admin. The more admin you have and the more bits of paper you have, the less likely you are to engage with your finances. So if you consolidate things, definitely do it. Okay. Someone said, if you are looking to buy a house for the first time, Mm -hmm. when should you start investing? If your priority is to buy a house, save cash, buy a house, then start Mm -hmm. investing. Yeah. Any ideas on what's likely to happen to the housing market? Is now a good time to buy? The housing market is slightly up in the air for the moment. Uh, We're slightly unsure about how the next four or five months will pan out. But I will say that I am not expecting a crash. We talked earlier about how people have rebuilt their personal finance. We talked Mm -hmm. earlier about uh, mortgage holidays, etc. And I think there will be a a lot of forbearance from the banks. They will be generous uh, when it Mm -hmm. comes to giving people further holidays. They won't foreclose. The banks are very, very keen not to be seen as the baddies in this environment, but to be seen as the goodies. So personal finances are in okay shape. Unemployment may go up, but possibly not as dramatically as people believe. Mortgage rates are staying very low, so there aren't going to be many forced sellers coming into this market. And prices were not as mad as they sometimes are as as we went into this. They've actually become more affordable over the last few years. So I don't think we're going into a crash. We may see prices come off across the country 3 4 5% into the rest of the year. But as I expect there to be mild inflation after that, I don't expect nominal house prices to fall very mm-hmm. significantly. So good time to buy, good time to buy a house. Do you know what? It's when you need a house. Yeah, exactly. Are premium bonds a good short-term investment option? Ugh. Well, (laughs) premium bonds, you know, uh, millions of people have premium bonds. Now, listen, in the old days, uh, whenever they were, premium bonds seemed like a great thing. There was quite a high payout ratio on them. So the sort of average interest rate you might expect was reasonably high and they are tax free. So the returns you get from them are tax free. But now, of course, most people's savings income is tax free because you can get up to £1,000 a year without paying any interest anyway. The payout ratio on premium bonds is no longer particularly high as 1.4%. And remember that, you know, you don't actually get automatically a return from premium bonds, you have to win. And so to get the 25 quid, I think it's one in 24,000 or something like that, to get the million, it's one in 40 million people. So your odds are not particularly high. The nice thing about premium bonds is that the the 
capital sum itself, the money that you put in is completely safe because it's government backed. So you need to worry about the bank you've put your savings in going bust, etc. And it's kind of fun. And at least it's better than playing the lottery because you're going to get your uh, your initial stake back. But beyond that, is it a particularly good place for your cash? Not really, no. Okay. ESG, should you be looking for ESG compliant There is places? almost no such thing anymore as a fund of any kind that doesn't claim to have some kind of ESG element in it. And so again, this comes down to how strongly you feel about things. There is some evidence that funds that focus on uh, ESG, environment, social and governance aspects of their investments do better over the long term because they cut down various risks, but the evidence is uh, still not enough of it yet. So it simply depends on, on how you want to invest. And we talked earlier about the importance of understanding that investing gives you a stake in the corporate world. And so when you start to invest, you get to make a decision about what kind yeah. of corporate world you want to invest in. And that's where yeah. this, this ESG stuff comes in. What do you want from the future of the corporate world where you get to choose? But ESG essentially means a sustainable investment, right? But there's some box ticking that can go on by some pretty massive... Yeah, but you know, what, what is sustainable? You know, yeah. ESG stands for environmental, social and government. Recycling uh, in the office, even if we're an oil company. I mean, it's Yeah, is it that or is it, uh, you know, there's, there's an extreme level of this. In, in the US, you can get listed as a B Corp and there is a, there's a couple of fund managers in the UK that are B Corps. And this just means taking everything to a, a fairly extreme sustainable level you know to be uh, only taking uh, electric taxis for example etc cetera, etc cetera. so you can take this to all kinds of level and of course you know there's an awful lot of what they call greenwashing where fund managers wibble away relentlessly about esg but of course behave appallingly themselves um, yes you know there's a classic of this in, in the newspaper yesterday uh, the ft had a, a story about um, senior executives and uh, this is a governance issue looking lovely lovely during the whole thing by not taking like having their basic pay cut because of the pandemic like oh well you know our companies aren't going to do very well so we'll pay ourselves slightly less and you might look at that and go well isn't that great they're really thinking about society here but of course what they're doing at the same time is taking uh, great big chunks of um, stock options which will make them way more money, way more money than they will not have taken in salaries. So, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing involved in ESG. Yes. And if you're looking to make long-term sustainable investments, you need to try and find fund management houses who have ESG principles embedded throughout all their processes, mm. as opposed mm. to separate ESG funds that they market in a, oh, look at us, we're so green kind of way. It's different. Yeah, totally. Final question. A family member of mine said, apparently I should be investing money in Bitcoin the other day. I was like, what? I mean, I don't know very much, but surely that's not where we should be putting our money. Or is um, it? Cryptocurrencies are a very long conversation. Okay. All I would say is that I wouldn't call cryptocurrencies an investment. Uh, because apart from anything else, the idea is that they are to replace money. Uh, so why would they be an investment? They would be a unit of exchange, not that. And also, this is a, mm -hmm. a very new area. And oh God, do you know what? You talk about cryptocurrencies, it's just like talking about passive activists. For many people, it's, a, it's a, almost a religious issue. I think it's important to know how cryptocurrencies work, actually. You know, I have a little Bitcoin just so I can see how it works and uh, how mm. the systems work and what you do with it, etc. But the standard take of old fashioned people on cryptocurrencies is that the technology is really interesting, but the currencies are not. And can you cash in your Bitcoin and get your money back? Cash in is the wrong word, but you're supposed to think about Bitcoin as a currency. 
So it has to be exchange so rate with You can exchange it yeah. back into your you pounds. Can exchange it back into your pounds as long as you haven't lost your password. And is it regulated enough? Is there not a lot of dirty money flying? Not a regulated at all, no. Oh, right. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end, Merrin. Thank you so much. I feel like we've literally scraped the surface, but lots of food for thought, lots of great advice as always. And if you don't subscribe to Money Week, then make sure you do. It is well worth your money. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Remember more, improve your focus, and multitask better. Hum is a brain sharpener that helps you do all three. Hum's wearable boosts your working memory and will be available in late 2021. Sign up to be notified when Hum launches and to learn more about the science behind Hum at thinkhum.com. That's thinkhum.com. Hum is designed for healthy adults and should not be used if you're pregnant, have cognitive impairment, implanted devices, or a history of seizures. The Hum patch is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. To learn more, go to thinkhum.com. Come.